everybody, and welcome to Theology and Dialogue. This is Eric Kindler. It's been nearly 40 years since the U.S. Catholic bishops released brothers and sisters to us, their treatise on discrimination in America. Now, as the nation continues to grapple with the tensions of today, the U.S. bishops have released a new document concerning diversity and inclusion, Open Wide Our Hearts. Father Stephen Thorne of the Archdiocese of Philadelphia joined us to share his thoughts on this matter and life as an African-American priest in the Catholic Church. Joining me are my fellow colleagues, Jacques Linder and Andre Price. Fellows, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thank you for having us. Hey, Eric, thanks for having us on. Oh, it's my pleasure. So we can get into this, guys. Father Stephen Thorne, fantastic guy. I mean, I called him a Renaissance man when we were talking, and I mean that because he is incredibly versatile, right? He went to St. Charles Borromeo. He's a Philly guy, born and raised. Temple would be happy because they'd call him Temple Maid because he's from out in North Philly, right? So he's the pastor, and I'll, I'll give some information on him before we get into it, but he's a pastor at a parish down in North Philly. He's a chaplain at Newman University. He teaches there, and he's worked a lot of different things, uh, particularly for the African-American community within the Catholic Church. I mean, the guy's a jack-of-all-trades. So very inspirational message, said a lot of great things. He had a lot of cool quotes. What did you guys take away just so, uh, you know, before we really get into the nitty-gritty of this, what did you think of Father Thorne? Uh, I thought the interview was really good. Uh, in the parts that I listened to, uh, you could really see his heart for African Americans and Catholicism, uh, and also laying out some of the issues and challenges that Roman Catholics face in terms of uh, Roman Ca- Roman Catholicism being palatable for African Americans. Yeah, I definitely th- uh, thought it was admirable um, for the work that he's doing um, across the city, so um, providing a support structure for his community in North Philadelphia, where he was born and raised from and returned to his parish. Uh, and then, and also spreading the word in other spaces, uh, such as Newman University. I think, um, as Andre said, yeah, he did a great job of laying out the issues um, for African Americans in the context of the Roman Catholic Church. And I think that uh, is a conversation starter for the church at large, especially in the context of the new uh, encyclical, or excuse me, bishop's letter that was released uh, recently. Absolutely, and and we talked about a lot of things. I mean, I, I brought up representation of governance you know, from the Catholic Church. Father Thorne thought it was a great idea, and I agree with him to talk about the emergence of the potentially the first African-American saint. Um, we talked about the work that he did in St. Martin de Porres, um, and basically the idea of um, anti-racism as a pro-life issue. There were a lot of things we touched upon. Are there particular issues that you guys heard um, or that you've just been keeping your eye on in terms of this dialogue within the church that you think are relevant to this discussion right now? Uh, yeah, as a Roman Catholic myself, um, I think that the the two issues that really strike me is representation and then anti-racism as a pro-life issue. Uh, first, uh, representation, I think, is very important in the church. So um, the the movement for canonization of Augustus Tolton um, is, is great, as well as... Um, I forget who you mentioned on the podcast. Thea Bowman. Uh, yeah, Thea Bowman, yeah, right. Yeah. Um, uh, but I also think that... Um, it's it's difficult when you have four African-American priests in the archdiocese, and um, at least my mind goes to, well, what happens if no African-Americans enter the seminary in the future? So, we, so this <coughs> shifts to um, looking at anti-racism as a pro-life issue because we need, or because we need priests uh, from all backgrounds in the Catholic Church to start talking about anti-racism, no matter the congregation that you're speaking to. So as I've grown up in uh, the suburbs of Philadelphia, 
we never spoke about anti-racism from the pulpit. It was a conversation about uh, the civil rights movement and like the good that it's been doing or and the good that it's done, but not, no real work in terms of how we as Catholics are called to continue the mission that King laid out uh, for the beloved community. So I think if we look at anti-racism as a pro-life issue, um, we need we need to start having priests that are willing to stand up from the pulpit and discuss that issue. Yeah, and it's a shame because as this so-called pro-life movement continues, right, as a hot-button issue in politics today, unfortunately, in my mind, with the March for Life allying itself with the members of the alt-right and the presidential administration right now, it makes it very difficult for many people to find it to be accessible, especially with the fiasco they had in Washington this year with Ben Shapiro and the Covington Catholic stuff. So it's it's a shame, but it was refreshing to hear you know comments from Father Thorne and you right now saying that. So I think it makes it a little bit more accessible. So Andre, what do you think? I mean, you're you're a shepherd of a of a community, right? You're also a pastor. Uh, what are some of the things that resonate with you in terms of what you know Father Thorne's talking about or this issue at large? Yeah, I think the represent representational piece is is key. Um, and I guess the question that comes to mind is, what exactly do we mean when we talk about representation? Uh, and I think there, there may be two levels on which we can, can think about that on. One in the more macro kind of level in terms of the church's magisterium or in the bishop's council uh, in making sure that African Americans are represented and uh, the issues and concerns to African American Catholics are, are being addressed. Uh, but there's also representation in other ways. So I'm thinking in terms of uh, the African uh, heritage that has shaped the, the Christian tradition more generally. Uh, you know, in, even in my own church, you know, we have depictions and stained glass windows, and many of the, the saints and the depictions are of people of European descent. Uh, I was actually uh, at St. Cyprian uh, for a funeral a couple of days ago with Father Brito, who's also another African-American Catholic clergyman in the Archdiocese. And you look at the artwork and things in in the churches, right? They're all depictions of uh, uh, Europeans. Uh, You mentioned St. Charles Romero. They have a depiction of St. Augustine, and he looks like a white European woman. Uh, so, so I'm always, you know, when you talk, when people talk about representation, you know, I always want to uh, ask the question, what, what exactly are we talking about when we talk about representation? Yeah, and I think, you know, Jacques, we had class last night, and you brought up the idea of, you know, medieval art and representations of Christ, uh, mm-hmm. you know, as a white man. Yes. Um, I automatically jump to because I like Spike Lee a lot. I think of the Malcolm X scene. You guys seen Malcolm X? Mm-hmm. All right, so great, great uh, scene when you know he gets up, he's in prison, and he talks about right Jesus having hair of wool and such, and just basically the animosity that he grew that he drew from the the pastor at the at the prison. I mean, it was a powerful scene. So yeah, like Father Thorne said a really important quote to me. I think in the interview, he said, "I can't be what I can't see," right? And I think, uh, what do you guys? Yeah, talk to me about that, guys, because. I think when we're talking about, you know, the first saint, African-American saint, representation, uh, and what have you, Andre, what you were alluding to, I mean, I think he summed it up pretty well in that quote. What did you guys think of uh, a comment like that? Uh, I, the, normal, the normal clapback that I normally hear when, when, you know, people broach this subject is, well, you know, 
race doesn't matter, the color of Jesus doesn't doesn't matter. But I want to say that symbols symbols matter, right? Symbols wield a certain uh, amount of, of power. Uh, there are certain ontological and epistemic assumptions that uh, symbols carry, and they radiate meaning. Uh, and I think that those things are are important. Uh, I think when we begin to understand kind of how symbols work and how symbols function, uh, that we do begin to realize that how we depict Jesus uh, is important. And while uh, Jesus may or may not have had skin uh, as dark as mine, uh, he definitely was not, you know, blonde hair and and blue eye. Uh, So if we're also talking about, you know, historical accuracy, uh, I think that those things are, are important. And I think it, it matters to get them as right as, as we possibly can. Yeah, Andres summed that up um, pretty well. The only thing that I would add is um, what, I, what I mentioned last night was that the church plays a, a role in the creation of racism through um, its symbols, as Andre was talking about. So by depicting Jesus as white, it um, divinizes whiteness in a sense. And that is harmful to the greater church at large as it's spreading to uh, spaces such as Latin America and in Africa where it is booming. Um, so, for example, it's, um, I went with my undergraduate space or undergraduate university to um, our brother's school in Kenya, and the cathedral over in in Niri, Kenya, had a white Jesus and a white Mary hanging uh on the wall and and i asked some of the guys and i was like guys like what like what do you make of um sort of that that symbol and they just said oh like that's just that's just how it is so i'm curious as to what um block blockades we're we're setting up as a church uh, through the depiction of jesus as white or god as white so Absolutely. And I think a lot of these comments are getting towards what I eventually wanted to speak with you guys about is with these, with these documents in particular. So it's been interesting, right? Forty years have passed since the church released brothers and sisters to us, which I think Father Thorne aptly recognized the kind of problematic nature of the title. Um, and then five years later, members of the clergy um, within the African-American community in the Catholic Church released another document about what they've literally seen and heard. And they talked about some of the blockades, right, and explicitly said that there have been things that the church itself has done to not just frustrate the development of leadership within the church, but to frustrate evangelization as a whole. And right now, my biggest question, and I wanted to ask him, and I'll ask you guys now, is, you know, why is there um, 250 professed African-American priests in the United States as a, as a part of the 37,000 that are apart as a whole, right? So that's 0.67% of all priests in the United States are African-American, which is a pretty staggering number. Uh, you have 456 bishops, 16 cardinals, 15 of whom are African-American. Eight of them are active right now. Uh, only one of them is serving as the leader of an archdiocese, six of them serving uh, leaders as a diocese. So um, those numbers are pretty staggering because if you have 3 million people as a part of a 51 million person whole, which is 6%, only 3% of the people are being leaders. Where does that start? You know what I mean? I'm throwing a lot of numbers out, but like, where do those numbers add up? Are we missing people at the evangelization end? 
right, before they get into the church? Are we missing out on people as they are in the church as priests like Father Thorne or people like him just not getting opportunities to be ultimate leaders in the church? What do you guys think? Is it a little bit of both? Because I, I don't know. Those, those numbers kind of speak for themselves, and it kind of warrants a, a more particular question about why that is. Yeah, I think that being the, the non-Catholic in the room, uh, in terms of why, why priests or representation, why it is the way it is, I don't really know if I can speak to that. But I know that right, part, part, of the, part of the problem that Roman Catholics are going to have to overcome is that African Americans uh, are just not historically Catholic, right? So you've got a, you've got a hist- history problem uh, to overcome. Uh, and Roman Catholic worship and liturgy, the structure, it, it doesn't it doesn't map over to kind of the rhythms of black black worship uh, in a way that really draws African Americans to the church. Right, you have certain pockets in certain states like Louisiana and Maryland, uh, where you kind of have higher pockets of of black Catholics. Right, which comes about through through slavery and for certain reasons, but I, I just don't think that Roman Catholicism as a whole uh, really speaks to the rhythms uh, of kind of black black religion uh, as a whole. And Andre, can you speak about specific components of that? Uh, so it's I knew that question was coming. Uh, <laughs> it's so when I talk about. Rhythms of black worship, the the cadence, right? The shout, the dance. Uh, Roman Catholic worship tends to be boring. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's very it's very formal and yeah. very very structured. Um, it's it's kind of in the the shout, the dance, right? The 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 cadence of the black preacher, right? There's kind of a rhythm to to black uh, religion. If you've ever watched Louis Farrakhan, even though he's in the Nation of Islam, you can tell he spent time in in the black church. Uh, it's it's kind of something that's that's unspoken, but it's felt. It's kind of in in the the DNA uh, of of black of, of black worship and black black religion. Uh, you know, it's kind of the it, it's everything from uh, the celebration and the preaching moment to the dress uh, and how you know uh, you know certain kind of cultural. Uh, norms and things like that. It's it's hard for me to pinpoint and say that's it. It's it's kind of a conglomerate and a, a web of kind of uh, different aspects. Uh, yeah, I, just going back to the title of uh, the two documents, I think that I agree with um, Father Thorne's point about brothers and sisters to us really sets up that dichotomy of us versus them that I still think that the Catholic Church is stuck in, which... Um, which goes back to your point, or which goes back to the numbers of like why um, African Americans are not let in um, to positions of power, or even enter, or can enter, maybe even consider the priesthood because of that. But I think the Catholic Church is still missing something in terms of um, by saying open wide our hearts, because that's still focusing on the individual piety, um, and it's not looking at sort of collective action where having read uh, James Cone and Dolores Williams, like that is very <coughs> central to uh, the black theological tradition. Um, I mean, and that's exemplified through the civil rights movement and I would argue the black lives matter movement today. So, um, so we think the focus is also in, in the wrong spot. There's no like anteing up, 
There's no really explicit, this is why I, a bishop, me, Eric, this is how I have failed in this. Right. Right. They, they failed to say that. And in their, in their talk, even in Open Wider Hearts, because I'll you know, I was, I think they did a decent job in, in remarking on a few things. But one thing I really didn't like the way that they said is that we cannot do this alone. Right. right. There are things that they could do yesterday to change the way that things can be done in their own neck of the woods. Right. Absolutely. Right? So, so that to me was the biggest thing. And I, and I agree with you. They're, they're just failed to be again, this kind of, um, just anteing up really. I, I don't, I don't know what else to say. So. Right. And, and they're framing it through like this view of conversion where it's like, yeah. what we're calling for <clears throat> is where they say on page seven is a large conversion of hearts that will compel change and reform our institutions and society. Conversion is a long road to travel for the individual. Um, moving our nation to a full realization of liberty, equality, and justice is, is even more challenging. Uh, yes. Um, but if we played a role in creating it, I think we can also play a role in, in dismantling it. And, um, and that can be done together where it's not just conversion isn't just for the individual, but it is for the entire church working together to be more, um, anti-racist. Yeah. Kind of reminded me of the reflexive take on a lot of people when they don't want to really get their feet wet. They just kind of go to prayer and kind of just, which is a shame because prayer is so powerful, but it's like, all right, we don't really want to explicitly, you know, step our feet in the water here. We just want to kind of be on the periphery and we'll say that we'll use the vernacular of the church to kind of say, like, we are changing things when in reality we're not. Right, yeah. I mean, acknowledgement of structural racism is, is a big step, Which I they think, did, yep. um, Which they did do in the letter, but it, it still stopped short. Okay, any final thoughts before we get into Father Thorne, Andre? Uh, I think one of the other issues, too, is that Right where the the document kind of comes short is that it doesn't acknowledge it doesn't acknowledge the way in which Christianity Western Christianity has been implicit in uh, racism and and slavery. So I'm thinking of some of the early work of J. Cameron Carter, Willie James Jennings, right where you don't have slavery, uh, you don't have Jim Crow without Christianity, right? And and until you're you're willing to recognize your participation in this, right, then it's going to be hard to uh, say to African Americans, you know, you should, you should become Catholic, or it's going to be hard to talk about representation because it's not in your best interest, right, to acknowledge the role that you've played uh, in this. It read like a standard uh, United States history junior textbook in which it talked about slavery and Jim Crow era as this malignant force that was like a demon moving its way across the eastern coast of the United States, right? It wasn't these individual people who conspired to create it, right? That, that to me, and I, and I agree with you because, again, if you're not implicitly and explicitly saying how it happened, then... What are you doing besides just regurgitating things that are nice to hear? Right, absolutely. And, like, I spoke about divinizing whiteness earlier. Like, the church also divinized slavery um, with, um, I forget the pope now, but pretty much explicitly stated in a papal bull, if they are not Christian, you can't take their land and enslave them. So, sure, okay, yeah. So, like, again, that's a part of our history that, that needs to be acknowledged and... Um, and it's not right now. Right. No, a lot, of, a lot of historical implications in that, right? Because that was all with colonialization, 
and dealing with you know one of our one of our favorite movies in class these days, The Mission, right? <laughs> yeah. So so that's that's very appropriate to what we've been talking about. So <clears throat> we will get to Father Thorne. So Father Stephen Thorne is currently the pastor of St. Martin de Porres Catholic Parish in North Philadelphia. He also serves as university chaplain and adjunct professor at Newman University. He is active in leadership among African Americans in the Catholic Church, formerly serving as the director of the Office for Black Catholics in the Philly Archdiocese, as well as leading the pastoral plan for the 11th National Black Congress in 2017. Let's get into Father Thorne, and we'll hear his thoughts right now. Father Stephen Thorne, thank you so much for joining us on Theology and Dialogue. And you were very accommodating. I mean, I called you yesterday, and you're like, come on in, Newman University. So I appreciate it. It's great to be with you. Oh, it's my pleasure. So so this was great. Newman, I used to work here, so it's just like walking down memory lane. Mm. The campus ministry department here is, is awesome, and, I, and I'm sure you've been an, an amazing addition to the, to the work here at Newman. Now, can you, before we get into the issues that I want to speak about, tell me about yourself. Where are you from? What's your background? What made you, uh, you know, want to become a priest in the Catholic Church? First of all, I'm very much, very blessed to be part of the conversation today. I feel very honored. And you're right, Newman has, what makes our unit so great is relationships. You know, we are based upon, um, you know, clergy, religious women, laity, married, single, you know, all of us together work for a common goal. Uh, and that ties me into why I believe um, I was called to the priesthood. Was I, I was blessed to have great relationships. Um, from a large family, you know, youngest of eight kids, so I was kind of spoiled. <laughs> Four brothers, three sisters, you know, so um, all went to Catholic school, you know, a small community, Holy Souls Parish in North Philadelphia, which I'm born and raised. Philly guy. Philly guy, you know, I uh, went to North Catholic, you know, uh, okay. so it was a, um, but really, from the very beginning of my life, was rooted in relationships. I had a great parish, parish school, parish community, was always blessed to be around good priests, you know, men who just really loved the people, served the people. And from a little guy, I just was inspired by their witness to you know to be to be holy and to serve. You know, I, and that caught my attention. Um, as a kid, I served mass. I was involved in CYO, worked in the rectory, all those things that a lot of people my age did back in those days in the church. And um, wanted to be a teacher. However, I really felt called to be an educator. That runs in my family very deeply. And so I went to college and wanted to be a teacher. And then um, just felt the bug to something more. I was talking to my pastor about it. He says, you know, how about the seminary, you know? And I always felt um, unworthy. The priest was an awesome call that, um, who am I to <laughs> to be a priest, you know? And one of the scriptures always touches my heart was when Jesus says to Peter, you know, you'll be fishers of men. And Peter, believe me, I'm a sinful guy. You get the wrong person. I'm paraphrasing, of course. And Peter says, you know, don't be afraid. Follow me, you know? And so it's not about being so much worthy, but being willing to follow Christ, and to be to be like Jesus, and so went to the seminary nine years from first college to the grad school and deacon year, and, um, and for the last twenty one years, I've dedicated myself to being a priest in archdiocese. I've been blessed to be a pastor, to be um, to be an administrator, and also to be a teacher. So I got my, my my goal to be a teacher, you know. So to be back here at Newman, I, I'm an alum of Newman myself. So I heard in yeah. 2015, yeah, is that right? I graduated. Came back as a hobby to kind of go to school and got a degree in education. I'm a certified uh, school leader for the state of Pennsylvania. You know, so kind of, kind of my side job. I enjoy teaching. You know, and so I've, I've taught elementary, high school, college, uh, but also I'm blessed to be the pastor of Martin Deporia's Parish, in North Philadelphia, which is the neighborhood where I, I grew up. You know, so it's kind of going back home. You know, so uh, 
it's, it's, I have, I'm living the, living the dream in a sense, you know, my best life in terms of really having a chance to be a pastor, but also to come here um, half of my time, my week to, to serve as students here at Newman and be a part of the team here. No, I mean, it's amazing. And, and we were kind of joking around before we got on the air, and I called you a Renaissance man. But, I mean, it's, it's like you're like, oh, I just messed around and got a degree in education. It's, it's, it's no big deal. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's it's pretty, pretty, yeah, it's pretty amazing. And, and, of course, like, here we are in Newman in Delaware County. I know there's you know, some great work and, and with students here. Um, but bring me to Northeast, you know, to North Philly, right? Mm-hmm. So um, I've spent a lot of time in North Philadelphia, like friends and family that have gone to Temple, um, but then also have gotten to know like some, you know, working as an educator myself, gotten to know some of the, um, you know, the young people that are there, the dynamics that are going on in the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, even, you know, as a basketball fan, like driving by Hank Gathers mm-hmm. rec center, you know, on diamond, um, there's, there's a lot there. There's a lot in, in North Philadelphia. What about St. Martin de Porres, for instance, you know, the, 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 you know, you're the shepherd of that community. What is it about the work that you do that you believe is, is really uh, beneficial or, you know, you know, really special to what you're offering to that greater community there. Sure. Good question. Um, one of the gifts of being a Catholic priest in this archdiocese, we live with the people. That's, that's very important. Uh, other traditions, the pastor comes and goes on Sunday morning. He may come there, but does not live there. And one of the things that we don't celebrate enough is the fact that the priest is among us. I live at 24th and Lehigh, so I don't just, I don't just know it as a job. I don't just come by there for a visit. Um, that's, that's where I live. I live in the community. Uh, and so, I, I, and being from that community, I know what's good about it and what's also challenged. And uh, we have both. It's a tough area. I've told the Archbishop that many times that St. Martin de Porres is one of the toughest neighborhoods in the Archdiocese. But we, we have to be there. We can't opt out of the poor and those who are in the peripheries, Pope Francis says. We have to be where the people are. And, uh, and, and people are suffering many times there. And yet, I always call it the kingdom of North Philadelphia. People say, why is we put the kingdom? Because I believe God is present there. The kingdom of God is among you, Jesus says in the Gospel of Luke. And so, um, being, bringing the gift of, of reminding people that God is with you. God loves you. God has not abandoned you. That's why I often, many times on Sunday morning, remind people that you know, God is with you in your struggle and your, your suffering. You know? And we do see a lot of that. And one of the reasons why I'm very intentional and passionate about education, especially on the younger side, we have a school from pre-K three to eighth grade, five hundred plus kids, mm-hmm. and really, um, and so many people really put a lot into making sure that school is open and viable and strong. And I tell the students all the time, um, education is, is critical for your future, and, and we remind them all the time of that. And being myself from Philadelphia and someone who was born and raised, educated in that community, I, I tell them there's certain things we don't tolerate here because we know how important it is for our kids to have their best so they can transcend what they see oftentimes on the streets. You know? And so I believe education is critical to make that happen. That's one of the greatest gifts the church has given to African Americans is that imagining the Catholic Church not being in a ministry of education, the black community would be devastated because so many people, um, many who are not Catholic, athletes, professional ath- actors, actresses, all kinds of folks have been blessed by the Catholic Church education ministry. And it's been, we have people who are on the road to sainthood today, who, uh, Thea Bowman, for example, a woman who, you know, um, at nine years old, converted to the church, you know, because she saw the witness of the Catholic sisters in Mississippi who were teaching and giving her hope and love. 
and so it's, it's a great challenge to be in the community there, but I, I, find, I, I like challenges. To me, that's part of what Preach is about. And I, I like being at Newman. I like being in North Philadelphia. And they're very different communities. And yet, I, I, I think it's important that we're present in both. And being a pastor there, uh, remind every Sunday when we have one Mass, I remind people every Sunday we come together as a family, we worship our God. And that's what gives us the energy we need to go out and to do the work of feeding people, clothing people, educating people. And most importantly, giving a sense of hope to people who are very challenged and very broken. And let's stick with Bowman for a second. You know, you, you mentioned it when we were in conversation yesterday about things we wanted to talk about. And you mentioned that there are six people, correct, right yeah, now that exactly. are in consideration. There, there right now is not an African-American saint. Right? Right, yeah. um, th- this conversation or this subject particularly, right, it allows us, uh, to, I think, to, to peer into the lens of basically the situation that we have in the church where... You know, compare that to like St. Catherine Drexel, for instance, mm-hmm. right? Uh, you know, and that's a that's a white woman who is recognized as serving people, right? The Native American community as well as the African American community. Mm-hmm. Why do you think it's important to have you know someone like Bowman or uh, Servant of God Tolton? Is that is that correct? Yeah. So why why would it be powerful in that sense to have the first saint? Mm-hmm. The Church canonizes saints not because. God needs them. God needs nothing. You know, the church canonizes a list, a canon is a listing of holy people because we need saints. And we model ourselves um, on these people. And so I often say, I can't be what I can't see. And so as a visual learner, you know, I think I see someone who models me. That helps me uh, to strive to become that. I always said, the saints are the hall of fame of the church, put it in sports language, you know. So, um, you know, if I'm in, I'm in a, a basketball, I, I see a Michael Jordan, you know, I, I want to be like Mike, <laughs> you know. So it's, uh, it's the same thing, I think, with terms of the church, you know. And because the church is Catholic, and meaning Catholic, she's universal. And because she's universal, everyone, all colors, have a place at the table. And um, so we canonize and recognize people of color for the American church. In the church in America, it, it's going to only raise up the church to be more who she is. And so for people who are in the struggle to realize that that can be me. And there's all six of those holy people, their stories are so compelling. Uh, Tolton was, was sold as a slave and um, became, being free, he was encouraged to, to go to the seminary, ordained a priest in Rome. You know, And Rome sent him back to America saying, America claims to be so enlightened, let's see if she can take her first black priest. And, and he actually had, he had, a very, had a very successful, beautiful ministry in, in the Archdiocese of Chicago. Um, so those people are, are holy for for the church, but specifically for for me as, as a black man, you know, uh, to see at Father Tolton and what he went through, and what the challenge he faced, and his resolve to be a priest and to be a great priest, that inspires me as a black man. My struggles are nothing like Father Tolton's struggles, and so it inspires me to be to be more faithful. Um, to Athea Bowman, a young lady who, you know, um, I, I love the story about her that she became a Catholic school and, and she noticed some of her classmates, and she's in third or fourth grade, were, were hungry. And she gave away her sandwich to, to other kids. And she came home hungry. And her mom and dad said, Why are you hungry? I gave my sandwich away. You know, and so her mom started making sandwiches for, for other classmates. She actually started evangelizing and giving out food for people as a little kid. You know, so that's, that's a story that reminds all of us that do I give my sandwich away? Do I share what I have with somebody else? 
So those stories are powerful, but it also says a lot to, to those, because the church not, has not always recognized the gifts of African-Americans. It's a fact. And so the more we can recognize that, and I think our letter, the bishops produce, open wide our hearts, celebrates the fact that we have not always done right by people of color and black people specifically. And so the more we can recognize our mistakes and our sins, we can begin to change our future and really be what God wants us all to be, which is the people that God has called to be. And again, the sense of, of love and life for all people. Yeah, so let's get into Open Wider Hearts. I know you'll be speaking on the matter here next week yep. on campus at Newman, mm-hmm. um, and I'm sure you're going to bring a great voice to that. Now, it was it was great for me to know, and, and that was the thing. I mean, I, I'll, be, I'll be honest with you, like you said, you know, I wasn't even aware of the document. I was more aware of the 1979 document, um, Brothers and Sisters to Us, mm-hmm. as well as the 84 document, What We've Seen and Heard. Mm-hmm. Um, and those in themselves are, are important, right? But um, before we get into that, I mean, from, from the 84 document, for instance, I mean, the, the clergy that wrote that, they echoed what you said. Not only did the church not recognize you know, members of the black community who have done good work in the church, but it was in fact even worse that they, it seemed like they literally said that it was it was issues of racism, both on a systemic and personal issue or level, that were thwarting the efforts of people progressing in the, in the organization of the church. Mm-hmm. Where is open wide our hearts today mm-hmm. from where they were in '84? I think the very the very language is, is, is to me unique. You know, I'm, I'm, my first point next week when I address this topic on campus, um, brothers and sisters to us. Um, as opposed to open our hearts, are very different. First of all, who are they? Who, who's us? <laughs> so it sets up a dynamic of the us-them reality, where this document reveals the fact that open wide our hearts and always open our minds, because racism uh, affects all of us, and it has a devastating effect on our souls. And so I think the very nature of the, 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 the language and the title say a whole lot. The, the bishops are more intentional about the, the sin of racism affecting all of us. Also, that being said, our, our, our world has changed a lot, and we've made some progress, but racism today is not as overt as it would have been at one time, um, but it's certainly, it's, 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 I think it's worse in the sense that because it's so subtle, and that's why minds and hearts have got to be opened because it comes to us in, in ways we don't even recognize sometimes. So we don't see color in white anymore. We don't see, you can't come here, you can't go, you can't buy this house, you can't come to this restaurant. But we, at the same time, we find ways that people still divide the human family. And that's so much against what God wants of us. So spaces like a Newman, other universities, should be places where we should be address, addressing tough issues. Because we're a faith-based institution, and also an institution of, of, of higher learning. So where else do you go? Uh, than a place where a, a premise is that we're all God's children. We're all people of faith. We're all people that understand that. And then secondly, a place where the mind should be open and data and facts matter. You know? And so um, I'm excited about this. I think the bishops have recognized the things that have happened in our country, in our world. You know, we can name a number of them most recently you know, that have happened when people have said and done things that have been hurtful to others, and we can't dismiss that. And the church should be out in front addressing this issue and, and not be in the background, but say, no, this is wrong. And all, another thing, too, and open our hearts, does this talk about just the, the, the dynamic between black and white and address other issues of, 
of how we have discriminated and hurt people. The Native American experience, you really cannot talk about because that's a foundational point here, how we, what we've treated people who are indigenous to, the, to this nation. How we have, you know, um, uh, what we've done to the Latino community and how people have a, a prejudice and, and a profile of that community as well. Um, and, and, and on and on. You know, I see it sometimes among African Americans and African Native peoples. You know, people of the same skin color and the same cultural background, but yet there's, there's a, a disconnect at times between communities of who were born in Africa and people who are from the motherland eventually uh, by generation. So it's um, it, it's it's a timely conversation. I'm glad they did it because uh, it, it shows us that you know we have work to do in the church and it's uh, and in our society, and, and we should be looking to to our bishops and to our priests and our religious and our as professors, etc., to give us some direction on how we can address these issues. To be honest, like reading through this and and having you personally uh, be able to show that to me meant a lot to me personally mm-hmm. because I where's my head been recently? I'm from Harrisburg mm-hmm. and. It's been hard. It's been really hard since August. Mm. I mean, with with the abuse allegations and everything that's come out, I believe in many ways the church is still in crisis Mm -hmm. in terms of being able to be seen as a moral and uh, legitimate source of authority in a lot of ways. And so... I agree. Yeah. yeah, Well, well, great. (laughs) (laughs) Now, that being said... Reading through the document, it was it was unlike a lot of documents that I've read from either the U.S. bishops or the church as a whole. A lot of times, it's either inaccessible language that's written like in a papal encyclical language, or it's just missing the point. It doesn't ante up. It doesn't recognize. Now, I'm going to get to a few things that I think the bishops themselves could have said and should say, but I do agree in the sense that like. They talked about an acknowledgement of personal and systemic racism, yes. which is which is I think has some merit. They recognized historical stances against racism within mm-hmm. the church. Mm-hmm. They did in some way go and talk about the ways in which the church itself propagated issues of racism, um, and that's important. And I appreciated some of the I appreciate some of the historical references, like to Augustine and the connections to theological and scriptural things, like. Augustine talking about the fall led to a lust to dominate. Mm-hmm. Um, so they, they, they brought a lot of good things to the table. Something very interesting about it, though, they called it a, uh, a pro-life issue, right? And we mentioned about that yesterday. What is it about this issue makes it a pro-life issue? If I'm racist uh, and I have racist thoughts and behaviors, I don't recognize your dignity, who you are. And I believe that I'm inherently better than you are. And so because of that, your life does not matter as much as my life does. And that's why it's a pro-life issue. Because if we, to say we are pro-life means that we recognize, we heard last Sunday in, in the first reading from Jeremiah, that, that we're all made in God's, we got us together in the womb. And so we are, you know, life's important. And, and, and all life is important to God. And we haven't always recognized, we can say black lives matter because you know, we have not always recognized that truth. You know, and so um, to recognize and say that you know people of all races are important to God and should be important to each other, that is something that is part of the, the pro-life agenda. You know, Bishop Michael Burbage, I think, very did a great job last week in his uh, statement connecting abortion issue and also racism in Virginia, mm-hmm. and it's something that we continually need to talk about. And I think the church has lost so much credibility. The church, her teaching responsibility. This is where the church can, I think, can, can make some gain in terms of being very out and intentional about looking at the issue of racism and what it is 
and also how we have been, been part of it. And what the first thing the bishop suggests is acknowledging sin, mm-hmm. recognizing it. Um, you talk about encounter, which is important too. You know, because many times I'm racist because I don't have this basic encounter with people besides myself. That's why uh, diversity is important. Uh, my talk next week is going to talk about the, the, the goodness and the gift of diversity as well as the sin of racism. You know, because uh, when we live in our own little world that's not diverse, it, it, it can begin to get more and more um, helping us to become more and more limited in terms of our scope. And so I think the, the, the pro-life issue is, is, is critical. And I think the, the putting together helps us to, to, uh, to realize how we can begin to get better at it. Absolutely. And you mentioned diversity. This is, I think, you know, if anybody is a part of the Catholic Church or outside of it, the idea of diversity, I, I believe, is a true problem mm-hmm. right now, right? Yes. So uh, looking at numbers from the USCCB website as well as Pew Research, there's 51 million adult Catholics, um, 3 million African Americans, nearly 6% of the adult Catholics are African American right now. Um, there's 456 bishops, there's 15 African American bishops, 8 active. So really right now, you have 6% of the adult population, that, or the adult Catholic population are African-American, but really a little bit more of 3% of the leadership ultimately, mm-hmm. you know, the highest form of leadership in the church, are of that demographic. And if we go you know, look at the you know, non-white Hispanic community, similar thing, which is an even larger demographic within the church, there's disproportionality, right? And the number that really hit me, and this was from 2017 from the USCCB website concerning um, there are 250 professed African-American priests, 437 deacons, compared to the 37,302 priests in total. So 0.67%. I mean, it's so, so how do you, like that's a staggering number, right? So how do you... Uh, work with that in terms of proportionality, diversity, mm-hmm. and really, like, where, where do you, you know, where do you go from there? And actually, numbers in our studies fell off even even lower. Really? Okay. But right. About two percent of African African American, two uh, percent of the Dasa population is African American. Two percent. Two percent. Okay. Yeah. So you just, I'm one of four African American. One of four. Uh, how many priests in the in the archdiocese do we have? Priests. You know, four hundred plus. Four hundred. Okay. So you know, numbers. So we're, we're, I'm one of four. So. Joseph Francis was one of the auxiliary bishops, African-American bishops, who now passed away from Newark Archdiocese. Someone asked him, um, why are there so few black Catholics? And yeah. his response was, no, the question is, why are there so many? And, and, and the, the turn of phrase, few or many, uh, is because the reality of what we have done and not invited and not welcomed and not really been intentional about the evangelization of African Americans at times, you know, um, even my own school, you know, we have a school that is again five hundred plus students. Very few are Catholic, and yeah. I was saying to the principal, you know, um, we're not going to force anybody to become Catholic, but have we done enough to to invite? Have we done enough to really encourage? Have we done enough to really? Every kid should be safe, no doubt. Every kid should have good curriculum. That's that's a reality. But have we done our secret sauce? Is that we're a Catholic school? We're faith based, we're a Jesus school. And so, how do we really intentionally invite and welcome people and find ways to encourage them to become part of the family? You know, and, I, and so you're right, I think many people still see that the church, the Catholic church, is a white reality. Um, and yet, the church is growing at her fastest among people of brown and black background in, in Africa, 
in Asia, in South America. But in America, we don't see that reality as clear, especially among the clergy. You know, uh, so it's something we have to continue to work on. I know myself. I always try to one be a good. I try to be my best witness of a Catholic priest in a black body. Um, and certainly I try to do that and also enter into those conversations. That's why I enjoy being on college campus because it's a great place for conversation. It's a great place to, to talk. I developed a class I'm teaching a semester called African American Spirituality. And uh, our, our theology department, um, let me run with it, it's actually it's full. It's 25 students, which That's is awesome. good for Newman. And um, it's a great course. And we, we talk about theology, but look about the experience of African Americans. Students, black and white, Catholic, non-Catholic, male, female, so far, I see me join a class. You know, that's a great thing. You know, but I give the, the Newman credit for letting me design a course and run with it, and, and not say we can't do that. There's no other theology course like that here at Newman. I'm the only African American teaching theology here. You know, and I'm an adjunct. You know, so we have to find ways, both in hierarchy in the church in terms of clergy, and bishops, priests, etc., deacons, um, but also we have to find ways of finding diversity um, in, in other spaces too. You know, uh, whether it's boards. Administration, faculty. Um, this 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 university does not have any African Americans on um, on their their senior staff here. So vice presidents, deans, president. So with a, with a population which is so strongly African American, we have to find. And, and our president knows that, and he's certainly intentional about trying to, to change that because it's important. So um, you, the numbers you offer, are, you know, are definitely a challenge, and it's something we have to just, I think, recognize. But back to Bishop Francis' point, you know, we have not always done our best. You know, yeah. even St. Catherine Drexel did a tremendous job of serving that population of African Americans, Native Americans, but so few of those sisters, women became religious women, and so we have to find ways to encourage that. I think it begins with relationships and conversations, and really uh, sharing the faith, and that's why the abuse crisis is such a horrible diabolical thing because it really has le- has limited relationship and how the oftentimes people are afraid to to celebrate and share their Catholic faith because of what we have done on some levels yeah with those numbers it's staggering but at the same time I mean you mentioned like I, I'm so happy you said like the the literal rhetoric of brothers and sisters to us versus open wide our hearts mm-hmm. I mean because we can look at that instance, but pretty much any kind of situation when the church is trying to speak about anything beyond comprehensive diversity, they just do a pretty poor job of it in that sense because it's always like, oh, you know, this is you guys. This is us. Well, again, who is us? I mean, even on the USCCB website, I see an advertisement about a book written um, on like Tolton. Mm. And, and even like the advertising, it said, you know, a slave who became free to become a Catholic priest. Mm. And it was just kind of like, oh, okay, let me remind you of who you once were. Mm. And let me remind you now of who you've become. Right. And it goes back now, to the point about the, the pro-life issue. Because yeah. God never recognized Augustus told as a slave. He was always yeah. a child of God. But, but the USCCB is mentioned. Right? <laughs> <laughs> but we, as a, we as a people, as, as American people, put chains on him and, and, and saw him as less than. God never saw that. And so, honestly, Rome didn't see that because Rome took him whereas there was no seminary that would take him. Our own St. Charles Seminary, my my alma mater, struggled to the 50s to take black men. Father Rayford Edmonds was our first African-American priest ordained in 1974. Okay. And how many? Such diocese was established in 1808. So, so was there any diversity while you were there? 
There was not. I mean, it was very, there was some, there was some seminar, brother seminarians who were African-American, Latino, but uh, as far as faculty, you know, uh, yeah. that was not there. I mean, so, you know, so we have to recognize that, no, we didn't, we didn't do right. You know, acknowledging sin, open to encounter, building relationships, relationships, also changing structures. That's another thing that bishops talk about in this, is that looking at ourselves, also being intentional, looking at what needs to change here. And that, that's a humility that we have to look at and realize that, no, we need to really be more intentional about how we recognize things. My sister always says, back to the abuse issue, which I always take it on hands on, because that's how you, you get well, by addressing something. Yeah. She said, you know, Stephen, if, if the bishops had a couple moms or dads in the room talking about protecting children, it might be different. She says, you know, parents know. And, and the engagement of lay people and parents uh, in ministry, I always say, you know, nothing happens in our school at St. Martin de Porres without involving parents. Because parents are the first, we say that our baptismal right, the first and best teachers, well, then they need to be engaged in the process. And so um, it's, that's so critical when we talk about, you know, helping people to grow is that how do we engage more hands and changing structures that are broken? And I think looking at situations, again, back here, I'm going to talk about diversity not just being a nice politically correct word, but it's a theological word because God made us this way. You know? And also think about Pentecost, we have an X, you know, how the Spirit comes and we all hear the Word of God in our own language. That's all the rich theological, scriptural language that we need to celebrate today and build those bridges that really bring people together, recognize that you are my brother and there is no us. We're all part of one human family. Yeah, I mean, and th- this is such a good conversation. It's a it's a darn shame. I know you have to get to mass, um, so so wrap it up here. But um, last thing, I mean, tell me, I, like, peer, give me a peek into Martin Deporis. What is what is so great about? Because I know there's a lot of good things there. Mm-hmm. And just lastly, leaving that because I've I've worked in education in Catholic schools, and I've worked in situations where. Um, like at Boys Latin, for instance, where we served a single demographic of young African-American boys from all over the city. And to be able to share in that space, it was you could feel that it was palpable, it was mm-hmm. tangible, and the guys really loved that. But as opposed to an archdiocesan school that was predominantly homogenous in terms of white and a white demographic, and now like a lot of like basketball players, like a lot of my players or students coming to me saying that they're not comfortable mm-hmm. in their own skin. They're not comfortable with even just existing in this building. Wow. How can, you know, what about like DePores or, you know, the experience that you've had? What, what would you say to, to students like that that are really struggling, um, who believe that like existentially they're having trouble mm-hmm. just being there because of something like the color of their skin? Mm-hmm. Well, education is powerful. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's, um, it's so important at many levels, and I think I would encourage them to first of all recognize who you are, you know, and know that. And I think secondly, um, don't be afraid to to, to 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 ask the questions, and also don't be afraid to to to, to engage administration and, and engage people to say, you know, what what, what am I feeling? You know, what's going on in my heart? You know, um, I say Martin Deporis in our school at least, we certainly try to create a space that is, you know, where people feel safe and feel welcomed. I always tell youth creators, um, the world's not all black. Most of our kids, 99% of them are African-American. You have to learn and not just learn to tolerate, but accept and celebrate people who are different than you. But that only comes when you know who you are. and You are God's beloved child. And you go to Roman, you go to Hallahan, you go to Crystal Ray, you go to Mercy, whatever school it may be, and you recognize and you make those encounters with other people. But that only comes when you really know 
who you are. And if you find something that's not right, doesn't feel right, you have every right to say, you know, this doesn't work for me. And I think speak up. I think for, for me as, as a someone who taught high school, who taught college now, who teaches at the university level, I, I enjoy when people speak up. To me, that's part of how we learn. So I, I welcome questions. I welcome dialogue. I welcome pushback because that's, that's to me, a great way to learn. And so um, I ask all my students in my, this course of teaching right now, you know, why take this class? What do you want to get out of it? You know, uh, and what can I do to help you? You know, not just I talk, you listen, but how can we can facilitate a learning experience that you're going to not just get an A for the course, but learn more than you have when you came in this building. Uh, so that's all part of, you know, and I, I've had them say, this is what, this works for me, this doesn't work for me. So I think it's important to have that voice. Um, as far as my parish, I mean, what I, I love about St. Martin de Porres parish Catholic church experience, especially on Sunday, is a place where we, I see more and more people who are coming who are not African American. And it's great. Uh, it's a real example of how we're building a space where people feel welcomed. And I think a lot of folks do not always feel that. So knowing folks are coming from Jersey, from other parts of the diocese, who are coming intentionally to St. Martin de Porres um, for the experience. I think the community life is so important, the sense of welcome, um, that we have families just joined the parish from South Philadelphia, biracial family. They come, they really feel welcome there. That makes me excited as a pastor because to know people can come into a church and know that they're welcomed here to encounter their God. And that's part of, I think, a gift that we bring. And the same that I try to offer here, that no matter who comes into church or my classroom or my I encounter in the, in the hallway, um, we can be more a people who recognize someone else's dignity. And it begins with simply saying, hello, my name is. If we can do more of that, we can truly be, as Dr. King said, the beloved community that God wants of us. Yeah. Well, well, don't be surprised if you see my goofy self hanging in one of those pews you're back welcome. there. You're welcome. Because it's more, <laughs> you know, I, you're, you're, it's an absolute, you know, it, from everything that you've told me and, and from just speaking with you, yeah. I can tell. I mean, the the Archdiocese and Newman, and I'm sure anyone that works with you, I'm sure the parish, it's a tremendous benefit to have you there. I mean, it's... Uh, it's really been a pleasure to be able to speak with you, Father Thorne. I know, I know you got to get to Mass. You're, you're a busy guy, and, and we just very much at Villanova, yeah. you know, we wish you well, and I appreciate you coming on to Theology and Dialogue. Yeah. So thank thanks you so much. much. Yeah, I was on campus a few weeks ago for a meeting. It's, it's a great place to be. Uh, it's a great university. You know, and, and it's all, I love any time a chance to have a conversation with people, whether it's a podcast or an interview or just a, a one-on-one with people. I think it's important. And the more we can speak to each other, can, can question and, and dialogue and have conversation, it helps us to overcome some of the walls that we've erected as people and really be people that are, you know, because I think it begins with out of fear. And the Lord says over and over again, do not be afraid. You know? And ultimately, I want to remind everybody of the hope that I have for the church and for the world. I, I don't believe in fear. I just don't believe that that accomplishes anything. I don't believe in um, uh, being afraid, we have to go forward with the great gift of faith and great hope. And so I'm hopeful for the church. I'm hopeful for uh, the priesthood. I'm hopeful for we're going to get better even as a nation and as a world. I think it all begins so often for young people, you know, who really can understand the hope. And we've seen revolutions happen so many times with young people. And I, I, I believe that's going to happen even from this conversation today. So well, thank you so much. Kevin. Well, as a spiritual wanderer who's, who's <laughs> looking for people to, to really look to for as that kind of bastion of the faith, you, you really do. You really do embody that. So, I mean, I'm inspired just by this kind of thing. That's why doing this and meeting people like yourself is really, really, I cherish thank it you. very greatly. Thank so, you so much. The, the pleasure was all mine. So, Father Stephen Thorne, thank you again. Theology and Dialogue. Amen. Great.
you like what you heard, follow us on social media. It's at Theo in Dialogue. And you can find us on our website at theologyindialogue.org. Thanks so much. Have a good one.